Hello, Weekside Podcast listeners. Welcome back for a special episode. We have a special guest host we are very excited about. Rohan Nankarni, who covers the NBA for SI.com, is joining me today as a guest host. Connor Orr is out on paternity leave. You may have seen on his Twitter account, he welcomed a beautiful baby last week. But regardless of that, we've been waiting to have Rohan on the show for a very long time. Rohan is an avid Dolphins fan, has a lot of opinions on Tua. He has been pushing for Tua to the Dolphins before most people ever thought of the idea. So he's really you know, got his ear to the ground. He can give us a Dolphins takes, but also <laughs> we're going to talk around the NFL. So we've got a lot to discuss today, but I want to start out, Rohan. You grew up in South Florida. You have been a Dolphins fan most of your life. And I want to hear about the experience of being a Dolphins fan through the 2000s. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. You know, Jenny, you're one of the most respected writers, not just covering football, uh, but I'd say in our industry, and then I'm on the other end of the spectrum. So I'm excited <laughs> to see where that where that leads us today. Awful. I'm sure the you know, congrats to the wars. I'm sure you know the baby's all cool and everything. But it, you know, took you guys long enough. I've been waiting to do this podcast uh, for weeks now. You know, if you if you say you're gonna have a baby, have a baby. All right. Uh, so <laughs> we just were waiting get... for a very long time for the yeah. or baby to come, and by we I mean you know Rohan and me because yeah, we were clearly yeah. the most affected in this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> so you know, congrats to them. But as far as my Dolphins fanhood goes, I would say I was a militant Dolphins fan for I don't know roughly like 15 to 18 years. I think there's maybe a 15 year period in my life where I think I only missed two Dolphins games and it was because I was traveling internationally. Wow. And it's, I regret, I regret it. Yeah. Is that a, is that a Dolphin sound I just heard? Oh, there's, okay. All right. Yeah. So I regret it. I regret how intense I was. Uh, you know, their, their win loss record would unfortunately affect my mood for many days. And as you guys know, the Dolphins have not been good for the majority of the last 20 years. Uh, it's been really frustrating. There have been some interesting moments. I remember I went to a Monday night game one year for my birthday where the wow. Dolphins set the record for time of possession in a loss against the Colts. I think they had the ball for 43 minutes and still oh lost. Oh, my gosh. What a memory. I remember trying to explain to my dad one day. Uh, it was the first time the Dolphins used the Wildcat in Foxborough in 2008. They were 0-2. And I was trying to explain to my dad that they'd beat the Patriots. And I was like, but it wasn't. They didn't just conventionally beat the Patriots. Uh, they outcoached Bill Belcher. I couldn't believe it. Uh, but th those, are, those are the kinds of things that stick out to me, the, the weirdness uh, of the Dolphins. The last couple years, you know, I have a pretty busy day job during the fall covering the NBA. I haven't been able to follow the Dolphins as closely. But once... I, you know, I could start planting the seeds uh, for Tua finally arriving in Miami. I, I've slowly but surely been annoying all the local beat writers, uh, annoying our writers at SI, and, and really starting to get back into the swing of things. No, you have been out front with the Tua chatter. I am curious, when you first were little, what attracted you to football or what made you want to be a football fan? Oh, that's a really good question, Jenny. You know, I, I really just liked all sports uh, when I was a kid. I, I, I don't know how it happened. I, I, you know, I was also really into basketball, and, and now I cover it. Like, I, I think for me, it was just like, I, you know, my family was like, this is what all Americans do. They love sports. So I was like, yeah, like, sign me up. You know, I played basketball and stuff as a kid. So I think that was really it. I, I was really just trying to assimilate. And now here I am, uh, 
you know, 20 years later, still obsessed as ever. So, yeah. And you were born in India, right? That's right. That's right. So you were, you know, came to the United States and following American football was the thing to do. So it really was. It really was. And like the Dolphins were at that time way more popular than the Heat in South Florida. Okay. Uh, you know, I had, didn't really watch any of Dan Marino's career, but they were still the team. Like the early 2000s, the Dave Wanstead era. You know, Ricky Williams was like my first favorite athlete. I had a Ricky Williams jersey. I was shocked when he retired. Um, and they were like, they were still making the playoffs, like a threat to make the playoffs with Jay Fiedler. So they were really popular. So in, in South Florida, especially the Dolphins were still uh, big news then. And we were talking right before we began the show, you sort of became a fan around 2000. So you've only really seen one Dolphins playoff win. Yes, I, only one win. It, it was that Lamar Smith game where he rushed for like 200 yards against the Colts or something like that. They won in overtime. There's been nothing good since then. The 2008 year with Chad Pennington was a lot of fun, uh, but they got stomped in the first round of the playoffs by the Ravens. But there have been so few moments of sunshine in between. That that dolphin noise that I heard was like the at the beginning of this podcast was like already a top 10. Yeah. Already like a top 10 moment of my Dolphins fandom right there. It's amazing. Shelby, yeah. our producer, is fantastic with the sound effects. <laughs> I even was surprised by that one. So yeah. kudos to Shelby. Um, so Rohan, we are going to dive into the news topics. And the first one is Dolphins related. So we're mm. going to just continue this conversation. Okay. So okay. I will I start. Apologize to any listeners so far, by the way, for the amount of Dolphins talk. We will get to other things. No, this is yeah. great. Okay. I mean, okay. there, there are plenty of other topics to discuss, <laughs> but the Dolphins are really interesting they this are. year. They we are. picked the right time to have you on the show. Although I did think we would probably be having you on after a Tua win. So it's a little slightly <laughs> different circumstances than we expected. However, we forge ahead. Um, okay, so let's dive a little deeper, specifically the quarterback situation. Ryan Fitzpatrick returned to the starting lineup for Miami's win against the Jets, while Tua was sidelined with a thumb injury. Head coach Brian Flores reaffirmed, if he's healthy, Tua is still the guy. What are your thoughts on what we've seen from Tua so far this season and your short and long-term expectations for the young quarterback? Uh, all, all good questions. I've been a little frustrated with how they handled Tua. I completely disagreed with Brian Flores, who I really like, and I think he's pushed all the right buttons with the Dolphins so far, particularly last year when everyone just assumed they were going to be tanking, and, and they were. Uh, he coaxed more wins out of that group than I think anyone thought he would. I don't think they should have taken him out in the Broncos game. I'm a little <laughs> dubious. <laughs> when was the last time a quarterback hurt their thumb on Monday in practice and missed a game? I, I, the whole situation is a little weird. I, I don't think anything nefarious is going on there. It is frustrating as a fan when you, you watch a game and Ryan Fitzpatrick comes out in the first half and throws, I don't know, I think 22 passes in the first half against the Jets yesterday. And you're like, why don't they just let to a, let it rip like this, see what happens. You know, I think that they're surprised by the success they're having this year. I don't think they expected to be in the playoff hunt, and that's made the calculus a little bit more difficult. You know, I commend them for turning to Tua when they did, when it looked like they had a chance to make a run. But I do think the coaching staff now is looking at it like we don't want to mess up what we have here. I do think in the short term, you know, not in a should we draft Trevor Lawrence kind of way, but they need to see what Tua can do. I think they need to open up the playbook for him and kind of, 
you know, give him full control of the offense. So, you know, in his first start, they were playing so well on defense and special teams. They didn't really ask him to do much. Uh, similar game against the Chargers. There have been a couple games where they just really haven't asked him to do anything, and I kind of want to see them not really worry about the playoffs and, and more so how do we just give Tua free reign to be Tua. I think you make a really good point about the Dolphins probably being farther along this season than they expected. And that sort of does change the decision making in terms of the quarterback. But I agree that they went to Tua at the right time. You were only going to get so far with Ryan Fitzpatrick. And I think you had to go to make the move to Tua, who raises the ceiling for your team. I guess the question, though, is, you know, with a limited offseason, he was still coming off the hip injury. So there were a lot of things that would maybe slow the development in his first season. Um, and so now he has an opportunity. This thumb injury comes up. He can watch from the sidelines after having played a few games. But how quickly does he return? Uh, what happens if Fitzpatrick gets hot in the time period before he returns? Do you just ride that out for the rest of the season? Um, but it sounds like you're inclined that whenever two is healthy, they should go with him. And, and I would agree. I mean, Flores has said he's the guy, um, although he did leave a little wiggle room because when is your thumb at full strength? Right, yeah. Uh, it's frustrating on so many levels. You hit the nail on the head on Fitzpatrick. I tweeted this out because I, I'm, I'm now like, uh, I'm just badgering our local beat reporter Adam Beasley. I used to be Miami Herald intern. Uh, I apologize, Adam, for how much I'm annoying you, but I'm just <laughs> constantly pushing the the Tua narrative on him, and it's frustrating. I mean, Ryan Fitzpatrick, three of his wins, two came against the Jets, uh, one came against the Jaguars. He beat a 49ers team on the road that was missing, I think, five defensive starters that day. He's had good numbers and, and by many metrics, you know, ESPN's QBR, his quarterback rating, he's having a good season. I just think he's playing well against bad teams, you know. Uh, and it's – I to your point about Tua not having the offseason, I think that's really valid. I, I think that it's definitely changed uh, how the Dolphins want to approach it. At the same time, when you see someone like Justin Herbert come in and just be allowed to, you know – go for it really you know the chargers are losing games but uh, they're not a bad team they're a weirdly like decent i think they're three and seven three and eight now after that loss to the bills uh their point differential wasn't terrible for most of the year uh they're right there i'd almost rather see a dolphins team like that where tua is learning you know by playing at his full capability as opposed to you know forcing him to be gun shy forcing him to be conservative just so we can sneak into the playoffs here at the end so I say we, um, but I think that's kind of how I think they should be approaching it. I mean, Joe Burrow was having a great year uh, before he got hurt. Uh, the Bengals weren't good, but at least they were kind of learning what he could do. And I think they've hamstrung Tua a little bit, both with the Fitzpatrick situation and how they want to just really take care of what they think is a playoff team. Yeah, it's interesting because in some ways, Tua came into a more ideal situation than Herbert and Burrow. There's more even despite the roster rebuild that they undertook last season, they have rebuilt it enough that there's more support for him because the defense is really good and he had to do less in the games. But in terms of getting a clear picture of what he can do, you're right. He hasn't been fully unleashed yet because they hadn't really had to do that. And when they got in a tight spot, they ultimately said, okay, you know what? The pressure is getting to him too much literally like the, the pressure on the field. Yeah. And we think Fitzpatrick can operate the two minute drill better. Um, so that was, you know, I, that's still an interesting decision and it's yeah. something that will 
continue to have to keep in mind as we see the rest of the season unfold. For sure. I, I will say as a fan, I'm really excited about what he can do. He's got zip, Jenny. You can't teach zip. <laughs> uh, he can throw the ball better than, than many Dolphins quarterbacks I've ever seen. But we should move on from a very young quarterback to a very old quarterback. Uh, I'm very excited to talk about this. Uh, there's been steady chatter in the last several days. Thank you. Thank you for the one last yes. Dolphins uh, sound effect. All right, there's been steady chatter in the last several days that Bruce Arians and his system are not doing enough for Tom Brady. Tony Romo was not subtle in his criticisms of the scheme during the CBS broadcast of the Bucks' loss to the Chiefs, and Brady's former teammate Rob Ninkovich suggested last week on ESPN that Brady needs a new coach. All right, Jenny, uh, what do you think of this? I think it's clear that the bat signal went out from Tampa Bay and Tom Brady or his camp got the word out because it was just, it, it happened too much, too consistently. Everyone all of a sudden was saying the same thing and pointing to Bruce Arians. Now, I will say, I do think in the NFL that coaches are often too slow to adjust their system to the players. Um, I think that a lot of times there are too many coaches that are loyal to their scheme and what they want the scheme to be rather than doing what pl their players can do well. But in this situation, we know what Bruce Arians' system is. It's always been this, you know, take these deep shots. And so when Brady signed up to go to Tampa Bay, that was part of the calculation, presumably. And I, I, I find the narrative getting out there this week interesting. Like on the broadcast, you know, Tony Romo was dissecting each play and what went wrong in the play. And it was generally things other than Tom Brady. Well, there was a lot of pressure there. Or clearly there was a Mike Evans didn't do what Brady wanted to do. And Romo's insight is always valid. And he always, he comes in with this fantastic knowledge base that he's willing to share to readers. It was just interesting to hear that on the heels of Rob Ninkovich's comments, um, essentially saying that Arians was wasting Brady and that, you know, Brady never misreads coverages and, and things like that. So it just seemed strange that it all happened at the same time. And, you know, we knew last season that there were trickling out of the Brady leaving New England narrative to different reporters. And, um, I just don't know at this point, they have to figure out a way to make it work. They, Brady signed up to work with Bruce Arians and they both have kind of made their comments in, in the media directly or indirectly, but they really just need to figure out a way to make it work. They're still in the playoff mix. They haven't looked like the team that we thought they might be a couple weeks ago, but there's still plenty of time to get things back on track. Um, and so it just feels like these, it felt like this concerted effort. That's why I say a bat signal. And I think it just distracts from the point, which is figuring out a way to make it work inside the building. So it's funny that you mentioned the bat signal because I, I noticed it and I'm certainly not as plugged in as you, but literally on the first drive of the game, Tony Romo is saying, I think they need to run the ball more. I, I think they need to run more of the Bra the plays Brady likes. I mean, he pointed out that, you know, they had a completion to Gronkowski at one point in the game. And he's like, Jim, uh, this is the kind of play they'd run in New England all the time. And like, you know, and Tony Romo gets excited and, you know, there's a play where they miss Mike Evans on a third down and immediately Romo's like, that one's on Mike Evans. Uh, Brady's, you know, he's looking at him. He can't tell if he's going to keep running his route or when he's supposed to throw it. And I was like, okay, like relax, Tony. This happens a lot uh, during NBA broadcasts where Jeff Van Gundy refuses to criticize an NBA coach. And that kind of felt like what was happening here with Tony Romo just refused to criticize a fellow quarterback. 
as someone who is not a Tom Brady fan, I'm enjoying Bruce Arians' shading him in his press conferences every week. Or I think the most recent one was, you know, as long as Tom reads the coverage, we'll be fine. Yeah. I I don't remember the last time, if ever. I mean, uh, Belichick wasn't exactly a a defender during Deflategate, but this is nuts. I mean, just going right after Brady uh, and what he's doing on the field, you know, it's, I was reading today because obviously this has been something that people are talking about for a couple of weeks now. Bill Barnwell posted a link to an old story written by uh, Chris Brown back when Peyton Manning had joined the Broncos. And I thought it was a really interesting how it could apply to Tom Brady. It was the point Bill was making as well was, you know, at first the Broncos, you know, Manning was coming off the next surgery. They weren't really sure. Uh, are they going to play the Denver offense? Are they going to do what Manning did uh, in Indianapolis? And over the course of the season, after a slow start, you know, they just started running his favorite plays as much as I am not, you know, thrilled by the idea of Tom Brady succeeding and like the kind of the science experiment they have going on in Tampa Bay, to me, it seems pretty obvious that if you have a generational talent like him, who by all accounts, I mean, the deep throws have kind of wavered lately. He doesn't look old. I mean, he looks highly capable of doing Tom Brady things. It would make sense to me that Arians is the one who has to bend a little bit here and at least install some semblance of these are four or five plays, you know, Tom loves. Let's just go to them when we need it, when we need something. Yeah. I mean, it's clear that Tom wants some kind of meeting in the middle and some kind of flexibility. I think what's hard is in New England, he clearly had this relationship with Josh McDaniels where they shared a brain and he had a lot of different offensive coordinators uh, in New England, but Certainly his, his final years there, he would send these voice notes to Josh McDaniels and they would, you know, bat back play ideas here and there. But it was more than just that. It was they had built this offensive system over years, decades, and they had brought in all of the other players around them into it. And, you know, the final year in New England, part of it was that okay, there weren't enough good skill position players, sure, but it was also they weren't player, players that Brady trusted in the system. So it's it's hard to go. This is why I guess I was skeptical of the Brady to Tampa Bay experiment. First of all, he and Arians have always played diametrically opposed offensive styles, but it's just so hard to recreate what was built in New England in a short period of time without an off season. And it's, it involves more than just the coach and the quarterback. It involves everybody on the offense. So I, I think you're right, Rohan. And I, I really like that Broncos analogy. You know, I think that they've got to figure out some kind of change to make down the stretch here. Now, I did notice that Arians told Mike Silver that they call all of Tom's favorite plays. Um, so clearly there's just like a disconnect happening here. And, um, the two of them just, they still have a bye week coming up, right? The two of them just need to sit down and figure it out and then um, make sure that everyone else on the offense is, is looped in as well. Because uh, as long as this apparent friction, even though they're denying that there's friction, they clearly are on slightly different pages on some level. So that needs to be resolved if they're going to be able to contend at all in the postseason. I would, I would just like to add, 
one thing is when I'm playing Madden, which I do quite often these days, uh, you know, it's a pandemic. I'm trying to stay indoors. Every third down, I'm just calling quick slants. All right. So I don't know if they want to just okay. steal that strategy. But right. I am I am curious, Jenny. I think you would know this and not to put you on the spot here. Are you getting the sense that maybe Bruce Arians never wanted Tom Brady? Like the, the way he has been so publicly critical of him even when they were playing well, it is really surprising to me. And we, we know he didn't want Antonio Brown and that turned into like a whole public farce where he had to pretend that Brady had nothing to do with it. it you know, Bruce Arians has never struck me as someone, he seems to be like a coach who's typically having fun. Like, and it, for the first time, it just, I, I'm getting the sense that maybe he never wanted any part of this experience. I mean, maybe I'm, I, maybe I'm projecting too hard, but he seems to have really soured on it quickly. That's an interesting point, Rohan. I don't know if I would go that far, but I do think from teams that were considering Brady this offseason, teams who had a need at the quarterback position, which the Buccaneers obviously did. Jameis Winston made too many mistakes last season. They were looking for another option. And I do think there was a sense that we should look into Brady. You don't want to miss out on one of the greatest of all time. We need to look into this. But then there's that also comes with a, well, we have to potentially redo our, our offense or, you know, we have to go all in on an older quarterback, right? And not, you know, take a younger guy. Like that was a situation the Chargers found themselves in, right? If they consider Brady, um, they weren't going to draft Herbert. So, you know, I think it was a tough decision. It was tougher than it might have appeared on paper because, okay, Tom Brady's won six Super Bowls. Every team should want him. But if you commit to him at this point in his career, you're, you may have, you know, your offensive style may need to be torn up a little bit. Uh, you can't move forward with the, or build around a young guy. Um, and so it is a commitment in a certain direction. And you might have entered into that without being sure about how all of that would unfold. All right. So why don't we move on to news topic number three, this was a weird week in Denver, Rohan. One positive test in the Broncos quarterback room and three other quarterbacks not complying with COVID-19 protocols left the team without a quarterback to play in its game against the Saints on Sunday. Kendall Hinton, a practice squad wide receiver who played quarterback in college, was pressed into duty. Was the NFL right to forge ahead with this game instead of moving it back until Monday or later? I don't, I hesitate to give the NFL credit for just about anything, but I do respect them for sticking to their guns with the COVID protocol here. You know, the Ravens situation, for example, that is like a full on outbreak, right? We're seeing positive tests, you know, rising practically every day with that team. This was, you guys know the situation. If you were wearing your masks, you would have been able to play most likely, but instead you were not, you didn't follow the protocol. And you know, it's not enough positive tests to cancel the game. And if you lose a position group, that is your responsibility. Now, should the we can go on a macro level and say, should the players have been put in a position to play during pandemic, et cetera, that's a different conversation. I don't want to put it on the players either. But, you know, there are protocols in place if, if this season was going to happen. And I think the Broncos quarterback room should have been a little bit more mindful about that. What's funny about Kendall Hinton Tell me if you agree with this, Jen. You know, sometimes people fail so spectacularly at something it actually ends up helping their career or like someone will go viral because like they turned in a cover letter that was meant to be a joke. And then everyone on the internet was talking about how funny it was. I'm kind of convinced that Kendall Hinton is going to turn this start into like a Harvard professorship or like a really good local commercial. I, I do think that this 
the start was so bad and people like I haven't seen anyone criticize him. This poor guy was thrust into an impossible position. And I, I think in a weird way, it's only going to help his career. He was never going to be known otherwise. Now he'll forever be lionized as the guy who had to start uh, because the Broncos quarterbacks refused to wear masks. Uh, I, so I'm happy for him in a sense. I do think this is going to help him. Moving forward, you have to imagine that every team is going to quarantine at least one quarterback now, right? Yeah, I am surprised that the Broncos didn't have that contingency plan. You know, you heard some teams this summer have the quarantine quarterback, somebody that was on the practice squad who wasn't attending meetings. The the Eagles did that with Josh McCown originally. Um, And it made a lot of sense because then you have a guy ready to go that's separate from the rest of the quarterbacks. And so you don't find yourself in this situation. Um, So I do think it either compels teams to do that. And it's also a reminder to guys to stick to the protocols. And I'm with you, Rohan. I, I think you explained exactly what I was going to say, so better than I could have, um, that these protocols are serious. You know, if you wear your masks and you distance, you wouldn't be in this kind of situation. And so the NFL put its foot down. And I will say, I, I did think about the player safety aspect of it. So, you know, you're putting a, does it expose players to, uh, injury risk as a result of beyond the COVID pandemic that we're all living through, but just the idea of injury risk of you don't have a, a, pra- a quarterback who is practiced out there. But um, I don't know a way around that, you know, other than delaying the game, which I think they are making a point about compliance with the protocols. And so um, I think it made sense to go forward as well. Um, it, it, you know, at least in terms of, this weird season that we're living in where everything seems bizarre. And as you referenced many times, you wonder why this is even taking place at all. But if it is, and you're trying to send a message and I think Vic Fangio handled it well, he said, you know, these are players we expect to be leaders on our team and they weren't leaders on our team and they're missing this game as a result. I do think the NFL lucked out that it was a Broncos team that no, you know, no one cares about and isn't going anywhere. I'm, you know, what if this happened leading up to a playoff game? What if this happened leading up to a national TV game? What if it was Aaron Rodgers not wearing a mask uh, in, in a meeting room? I'm, I'm very curious to see if the NFL is presented with a challenge like that at any point. I mean, they're kind of being presented with this Raven-Steelers game. Um, very fascinating to see how that turns out. I, I think it's crazy that they would try to play it tomorrow. You we know, talk about injury risk. The Ravens haven't practiced in, you know, over a week now. So, yeah, I'm with you there. I, I feel bad kind of hammering uh, the Broncos quarterbacks. And I think all of us have at one point or another during this pandemic, or most of us rather have had moments of weakness or a, a time where maybe you should have been a little bit more serious about wearing your mask. So I understand how it could happen uh, if you're a Broncos quarterback. And I, in fact, respect the NFL for having a protocol in place that takes into account transmission. And it's not just based on positive tests or not. Um yeah, I, I think that they, they didn't really have a choice and it, it kind of helped that they had an opportunity to set the example with a team that, you know, is maybe inconsequential. Yeah, you're right. There could be additional situations down the line that are a little bit stickier to navigate. Um, and now I saw people saying, well, they're essentially tipping the scales to the Saints. The Saints get this easy win against the Broncos. But going into this season, I think everyone realized or should have realized that there might be competitive imbalances that the NFL was attempting to play a complete season 
in the middle of a pandemic and that there were going to be situations that came up that maybe wouldn't seem fair, but were, you know, necessary. Um, so that's uh, the competitive balance stuff this season. It's uh, that argument. I, I don't really have a lot of like time for because, for sure. you know, you just, you knew it was going to be like this. You knew there were going to be situations that were kind of unfair, but I agree. Like, as we head into the playoffs and that's why the idea of a, a bubble type situation has come up and you cover the NBA and I don't know, is it, is it weird to be watching the NFL season compared to what the NBA did? It is, it is crazy because I, I deep down part of me wonders if the NBA is like jealous that it came back first and didn't do what all these other leagues do, which was basically do your normal season. Like the NFL didn't do anything short of, you know, tests, which is a given at this point. And, you know, there's fans at games and, you know, MLB for the most part, you know, they dealt with outbreaks certainly, but they didn't radically, you know, alter how they were putting on their season. Uh, They had a player (laughs) test positive during the world series game. The NBA, I mean, sank all these resources into the Orlando bubble, Uh, the players, coaches, staff, everyone dealing with the mental health effects. And I wonder if the NBA is like, well, what if we had just waited and let, you know, the NFL do this and let MLB do this. And then we could have, you know, had covered to our season. I, I don't think they really think like that. It is strange to see it, especially when you have the resources that the NFL does and you've seen it in practice, how it could work to not come up with some kind of solution or at least do it for the playoffs. It would make, it would be crazy to me if they didn't figure out some kind of playoff contingency it's for their own interests. It's so that you are, are putting on the best product possible. I'm, I'm sure that their owners are like, listen, people are going to watch our games no matter what we do at this point. Uh, they're really pushing the envelope, pushing the limits uh, on what people have been putting up with, frankly, for years now. So maybe they really don't care. But it is surprising to me because this is a league that has more resources than you know any other sports league in the world. Right? Maybe not. I mean, maybe that's not true. In, in the country, at least, certainly. But so why not, you know, use that to your advantage and, you know, maintain the integrity of your product. That's what's surprising to me. You know, that's, I think what the NBA ultimately did was, you know, they were able to crown a a champion that has integrity to it. And I'm surprised that the NFL wouldn't want to do that. And that to me is the really strange part about it. Yeah. And that had been lightly discussed, but there hadn't been any it seemed like the playoff bubble idea was still a non-starter. But as this second surge continues in the United States in the coming weeks, it it may become a necessity. For sure. Yeah. I'm surprised not doing it for the regular season, but or not surprised about the regular season, but the playoffs, that seems like an obvious one. Well, speaking of the postseason, we're now at the point of the season. It's officially like in the hunt time when you're watching games and you get, you know, the in the hunt column, Uh, we can see the playoff picture coming into focus. uh, And we can see the race where the nascent seven seed looks like in each conference. So let's discuss Uh, Was playoff expansion a good idea? Jenny, what do you think? Well, I got this idea for this topic because Gary and I sort of touched on this lightly in the Monday morning podcast, but I was always opposed to the seven seed. And now that we're seeing the playoff picture come into view, I am still opposed to the seven seed. <laughs> I, particularly looking at the NFC, uh, you know, the AFC is, is a little bit deeper of a field. Um, but looking at the NFC, 
there's just a lot of teams still in the mix for that seventh <laughs> spot, like the Vikings and the Bears and even the 49ers, teams that we would have counted out a long time ago. Um, I really liked the old format. I liked that two teams in each conference had a first round bye. Now it's only one team in each conference. And um, I like that it was a small and exclusive playoff field. It, it felt different from other sports. We're making the playoffs in itself was a, a high achievement. It was a benchmark. Well, except for if you're the NFC East championship, <laughs> but champion. But aside from that, um, and so now that I'm looking at the field shake out, I, I still feel the same way I did. How about you? Jenny, I could not agree more. I like blanket. I'm opposed to playoff expansion. It's bad in all sports. Uh, the playoffs should be really hard to make. Uh, MLB should only have two playoff teams, by the way. They play so many damn games. Why do we need <laughs> another whole playoffs? Uh, I Like you said, there's already, first of all, we've already seen it happen like a few times in the NFL now where they already, their playoff issue wasn't the number of teams getting in. It was the division structure and how that, you know, would allow the random seven and nine team uh, to make it to the playoffs. And, you know, the NFL, especially, you know, their playoffs are not really a great barometer of crowning the best possible team to become the champion. Like there's just, it's very hard to do that in the NFL because they play so few games. Uh, you, even a 16 game schedule is like, you can have fluky teams that go 11 and five, but they had like a, an even point differential, like weird stuff like that happens in the NFL. You should want to see your best teams make it to the end. And, and this is only giving them another hurdle you know, you might say, oh, what's the harm if the Vikings make it? You know, they never know what could happen in a playoff game. Someone gets hurt. Someone gets COVID. Like, you know, and the next thing you know, the Vikings are going to all of a sudden make like an NFC championship game. I'm with <laughs> you. I, I don't think I don't think it's a good idea. And, and I'm, you know, once you give an inch, like, you know, it's so easy to take a mile. And it's like, what's going to stop them from going to eight teams in each conference? Uh, I, I really, really don't like the idea. And you know, if they were going to address the playoffs, what they need to address is, you know, giving division winners a guaranteed top four seed and and maybe even guaranteeing them a playoff spot because, like, why in the world should an NFC East team make the playoffs this year? I mean, what if an NFC East team makes the playoff over Tom Brady and the Bucks? Like, how could the NFL be happy with, like, that being their playoff product? Uh, and, and, you know, the Vikings, I, I don't know. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Yeah, so right now in both conferences, we have in the wild card spots in the AFC, Browns, Dolphins, Colts are five, six, seven spots right now. And then just outside would be the Ravens at six and four and the Raiders at six and five. In the NFC, five, six, seven are Rams, Buccaneers, Cardinals. And then just outside the threshold are Vikings and Bears and 49ers, all at five and six. So the, the, the Bears should be nowhere close <laughs> right. to the playoff fight. The Bears, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. This really reinforces the reinforces the issue. You know, they're just outside. They're one game behind for the wild card. But yeah, they're going to be in the hunt. And that's the other thing is that we're going to have these large in the hunt graphics all the way. Right. The, the, poor, the poor TV graphics people <laughs> got to be coming up. Also, it's like the bears, the worst thing that could happen to the bears right now is being in the hunt. Like what they need to realize is that they're bad, that their hot start to the season was complete fool's gold. And instead, like, 
you worry, like, can they sell to management? Can the, can the coaches sell to ownership? Look, we're in the hunt. Like, let's keep this experiment rolling. Like, Trubisky falls. The Broncos don't need a quarterback. We have two. Like, let's keep this rolling for another year or two and see how it goes. Like, that's the worst. That You should not want that if you're a Bears fan. You should want your team to miss the playoffs definitively so that you can address the issues at hand. And I, I just think that the it's going to incentivize the wrong teams this, you know, the seventh seed because it's going to give uh, some organizations false hope when they actually need to be making changes. Yeah. Another great point. All right. Speaking of changes. Wow. These topics really (laughs) ended up dovetailing one to the other. All right. New job vacancies opened up over the weekend with the lions firing both head coach, Matt Patricia and GM Bob Quinn and the Jaguars parting way with GM Dave Caldwell, who was in his eighth season with the team. The Falcons and Texans are also looking to hire a new head coach and GM, and by season's end, there will be other openings, Jets, maybe Chargers, Bengals. What is the best situation, in your view, for a prospective head coach or GM? There's an argument to be made for almost all of the teams you mentioned, I think, except the Jaguars. Um, You know, the Texans have a great quarterback. The, The Bengals and Chargers have two young budding stars. Uh, if Anthony Lynn, poor Anthony Lynn, just always losing it in the last five minutes of nearly Some every game. Losses. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Jets are are probably going to be in a position to draft Trevor Lawrence. I, I think if if I'm looking at it position of what's the opportunity that will give me the most time to kind of fix it, I think it's going to be the Jets. Because you when you come okay. in as a new coach or GM and you draft someone number one overall – they kind of give you three years almost no matter what to see how it goes, right? Like it's really hard to get fired when you come in uh, from a team that badly. So if I'm looking at it as purely like a selfish motivation, who gives me the best chance to just keep my job for the longest time? I think I would say the Jets. I think beyond that, I am almost, I'm looking at the Bengals. Burrow's really good. I mean, ownership is a question there, but if let's say you take a job in the AFC West, you don't want to deal with Mahomes every single year of your career, right? However, you know, we've seen the Ravens take a step back this year. Roethlisberger is getting old. Uh, Burrow, I think, is really good. He also is just a, a cool dude. Like, I, I think he's a, a fun guy to have as the face of your franchise. I, I'm like a little bit higher on the Bengals maybe than most people. Okay, interesting. No, those are, those are good insights, Rohan. So my... First instinct would be to say the Texans because mm-hmm. of Deshaun Watson, but I do think there's a lot in the organizational structure that they have to figure out. What is the role of Jack Easterby? Will he continue to be an influence or influential member of that organization? Um, and you know, it just feels like that organization has had some instability in terms of how it's run, and so that would be a concern to me. Um, and you referenced the Jets, and I think my concern would be the ownership there. Mm-hmm. Uh, having covered the team, I think when you don't have a, a strong or present owner, um, that often doesn't lead to a clear direction. And the question I would have there, too, is is Joe Douglas continuing to stay in the GM job? If they do fire Adam Gase, which seems at this point to be likely, would they also move on from Douglas? Um, and that would be a factor in the decision-making. This might not be a popular answer, but I kind of <laughs> like the Falcons opening. Okay, okay. And I know there are some reasons not to. Matt Ryan is at the end of his career. Uh, he would be 36 next year, I believe. 
they would be way over the salary cap. They've got some cap things to clean up as a result of a, a whole bunch of prime contracts given out to top players in the last few years. But um, I do feel like it's a more stable structure. They're hiring mm-hmm. both the head coach and the GM. They are starting a new um, I feel like Arthur Blank is an engaged uh, owner who, um, you know, has had good instincts on on different things and, you know, has been, you know, he gave Dan Quinn another shot this year. Obviously, it didn't work out, but um, I, I, I think that the ownership situation there is better than in some of the other vacancies is what I would say. Um, and, you know, I think Raheem Morris should get strong consideration for that job. He's done a really good job pointing the team in a better direction since they um, since they fired Quinn and Dimitrov. Um, so he should have a strong consideration for that job. But um, but yeah, that's kind of what I think. I kind of like the Falcons opening. That's very interesting. I mean, it, there's something I think appealing about a potential clean slate, like if and once, if and what. If and when you move on from Matt Ryan, for example, you know, kind of purge yourself of the bad contract, it's not dissimilar to where the Dolphins were, you know, before the start of last season, right? You're really cleaning house. You know you're going to have to take a massive step back, but you give yourself kind of that clean slate to rebuild. I, I, have, a, I have a thought about the Texans. Okay. First of all, hilarious that they don't have their, their top two draft picks, uh, yeah. you know, in the upcoming draft. Uh, as a Dolphins fan, thank you for that. I'm a big Deshaun Watson fan. However, I'm struggling to think of a last time a quarterback was this good. Like his last, you know, six weeks or whatever have been in, insanely good. And the team to still be performing that poorly. Like, you know, I'm trying to think like even the Seahawks, they have an awful defense this year, right? Uh, but they've, you know, cobbled together a winning record because Russell Wilson is is just incredible. I'm not saying Deshaun Watson is like a guy putting up big stats on a bad team. It's just interesting to me that even though he's been, you know, out of his mind practically for six weeks straight, they've still been kind of as as much of a mess as they have been. Yeah, and I think that kind of goes to something else that I was thinking about too in that, yes, quarterback is always like an important criteria when you're assessing any opening. However, I don't think it's always the end-all be-all. And... I think there's a a lot of things that go into an organization having success and you don't have to have a top tier quarterback to win. I mean, the Titans are doing well with Ryan Tannehill right now. So they have kind of set this different mode. And, you know, if you're take the Jets job and you get Trevor Lawrence, just getting a talent like that, as rare as he might be, doesn't mean that you will have Mm -hmm. success. You have to build the team around him you have to have a good organization to do that um, and then if you don't do that then the failure is even more magnified so for instance with the Falcons opening you know I think it would you know uh, moving on from Matt Ryan next year I think would be contractually very difficult to do but and I don't know how many years Ryan has left but if you take the stance of okay he can be my quarterback for now I look for the next quarterback in the meantime um, maybe there's a little bit of pressure off. You know, you have a couple different options there, um, uh, a couple different routes to go. So um, I don't know that I would always just pick the the team that has the, the, the most promising quarterback because the most cr- promising quarterback might not end up being this place where you would have the best chance of success if there aren't, if there isn't a good structure around him. 
basically I was an idiot for saying the Bengals. That was no. a terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's it like, how could you do that? Uh, yeah, I mean, a Burrow's special, you know? Yeah. Um, it's just like you think about like Adam Gase, a factor in him taking the Jets job with Sam Darnold. Um, and you could say that, yes, of course, Adam Gase is a factor in Darnold not taking progression forward. How could he not be? But um, I just never understood why if you had two head coach chances, why you would use both of them in the same division as Bill Belichick. Um, kind and, of like how if you're another team in the division, why you would take your chances on beating Bill Belichick with Ryan Fitzpatrick, who's now started <laughs> for every AFC East team except the Patriots. <laughs> The All AFC right, East is constantly pulling uh, moves like that. So it doesn't surprise me, but yeah, Adam Gase, man, what an experience that has been. Yeah. So to say I'm going to take the Jets job because of Sam Darnold, he, he shouldn't have taken the Jets job. Um, he should have probably taken a year off. Yeah. Um, I'm always a big proponent of that because I think you take a job right away. You don't learn lessons, but now we're in a tangent. Yeah. Anyways, point being, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'd be interested yeah. in the Falcons job. <laughs> I think you do great uh, as the head Thank of that you. front office, Jenny. Appreciate um, is it. it is it segment time? Is it time it to debut? It is segment time. And we uh, have a brand new segment today in place of the Oracle, um, Fourth and Han. <laughs> Fourth and Han. Uh, shout out to my old buddy. Oh. Ooh. Wow. Really elegant music. I love this. This is great. This is awesome. Well, um, I owe credit to my old friend, Matt Scheinman, who I've known since kindergarten, who has a special talent for coming up with puns based off my name. Amazing. Uh, for coming up with Fourth and Han. So this isn't necessarily a new point, but now that I'm being given a soapbox on one of the most popular NFL football podcasts in the world, I really wanted to make it a point to say that NFL coaches need to stop being cowards. And something really, really bothered me uh, watching the games on Sunday. I'm a big Andy Reid fan. I think he is the best football coach ever. I, I think he's a better coach than Bill Belichick. You can give that man A.J. Feely or Pat Mahomes, and he's going to give you you know some semblance of a good offense. He has fourth and goal on the one foot line yesterday on the Chiefs opening drive. There is... There is the least amount of separation I've ever seen between the line of scrimmage and the goal line. Like, it, I don't even know how it was possible for them to snap the ball. And he called for the field goal unit. You have Patrick Mahomes. Hey, why are you ever kicking field goals? And it's just so frustrating to me every week watching these games. I don't know how people who watch this sport for a living do it because I'm constantly going crazy at how coaches are so terrified at the thought of losing that they will... Instead of playing to win the game, they're often just playing to extend the game. It's like, how can we keep the game going a little bit longer instead of actually actively trying to win it? And when you see a team with maybe the most athletically gifted quarterback to ever play the sport, calling for a field goal from the one foot line, you just you have to question like how this you know line of thought became so pervasive in the sport that you at, at no point can you even. Uh, I, you know, consider the risk of trying to win the game as opposed to merely extending it. It made me really angry, especially as like an Andy Reid apologist uh, to see him make a decision like that. All right. I like it. Now, did you enjoy it at the end of the game when they threw on third down? 
Well, that was great. I mean, it was like a third and seven. It made a lot of sense. Again, like put the ball in your best player's hands. Oh, yeah. I would trust Patrick Mahomes to do practically anything at this point. Yeah. Is he? He's already maybe like a top five football player of all time, just in terms of what he can actually do. I just like every week I see something that just it makes me want to pull, you know, my hair out. And I'm growing out my hair in the pandemic. And it's like the NFL (laughs) is going to make me lose all of it again. It's just. Yeah, it's I don't I, I just don't know how people do it. Like, are you not watching these games going nuts? Being like, what are you doing? No, anyway. it's, it's a great point. I like it. That was a very spot on first segment on the show, Rohan. <laughs> you nailed it. I love it. I appreciate it. Again, I know it's not a particularly unique or novel position, but to see the Kansas City Chiefs do that, I was legitimately right. blown away that they would take Mahomes out of the field one foot from the end zone. No, it's, it's a fair point. It's yeah, fair. yeah it was a very dolphin-like behavior. You're right, Shelby. <laughs> All right, we will wrap up with the Rentis Consensus. Consensus. <laughs> so I just would like, sometimes I point, I mean, we're just, we're killing the sound yeah. effects today. This yeah. is a, Shelby, this is a peak performance yeah. by you. So can we submit this for like a, what's the podcast equivalent of the Emmys? Um, just, we would definitely win for yeah, this yeah, episode. Definitely, yeah. Um, so I was watching Red Zone and I just happened to hear a casual reference to Baker and the boys. And it really bothered me on this particular day because Callie Brownson was the first female interim position coach in NFL history for the Browns. She was stepping in as the, she's the chief of staff, but she was stepping in as the current tight ends coach. And I know that they're probably referring to Baker and the 10 teammates of his on the field, but there are a lot of people that make up an NFL organization. Callie Brownson was a woman on the sidelines working as a coach for the Browns. Uh, The Browns have two owners, Jimmy and Dee Haslam. Dee Haslam is a woman. Um, They have plenty of other staff members who are females. And so saying Baker and the boys, and I often hear things, you know, other uses. Um, The Titans had... um, something involving a slogan last season and involving like for the boys or something. I'm misquoting it now. And it always really bothers me because NFL organization, there's a lot of people that make game day happen in a lot of levels. And this particularly happened to be one where there was a woman on the sidelines, you know, coaching the players on the field. Um, I just think language matters and the way we talk about things matter. And There are a lot of different ways to say that Baker and the Browns is also um, alliteration. You know, that would be a better use than Baker and the boys. Just a lot of different ways to say it. And that just stood out to me. It might seem like a minor point, but I think how we talk about things is important. And especially on a day when someone was doing something for the first time, was achieving uh, a career milestone. Um, I wouldn't want to re-listen to part of the Red Zone broadcast and hear Baker on the boys. So that is my consensus this week. I think that's a great point, Jenny. And I'm glad you brought that up because, I mean, multiple women made history in football this week. I mean, Sarah Fuller uh, playing for Vanderbilt, the first one to play uh, in a Power 5 game in the NCAA. And, you know, I know that you talked about this a couple weeks ago on the podcast. I think it was Antonio Brown's first game with the Bucks, And, you know, Al and Chris did their usual, like, we cut to the booth and have a serious conversation. And, you know, something that bothers me, you mentioned this, and I thought you brought up a great point on the podcast that I, I wanted to make sure I brought up whenever I came back on was they mentioned that, you know, some of the victims groups are upset with this. 
and you mentioned like as if those are the only people upset you know sports illustrated a lot of reporting on antonio brown and, and kind of the, the heinous things he did last year is a reason why he you know wasn't on an nfl team and you know i'm not saying that this Baker and the boys situation, it sounds a little bit, you know, maybe more innocuous than NBC yeah, kind of fumbling, definitely. you know, oh. fumbling the Antonio Brown conversation. But the contempt, it seems like people have sometimes for trying to be more inclusive is is really frustrating to me. And, you know, I, I, I don't think that the NFL is necessarily unique in it. It, it might, it, but it might be the worst at times. And, uh, you know, I just want to say as someone who is a fan of the league and I, I, I want more from the announcers. I want more from the people around the game to, to highlight the people who come from different backgrounds, whether it's like someone like me, who's South Asian, we don't have a lot of representation in the sport or, or women. Like I, it, it frustrates me when those topics aren't handled well uh, by the people who I'm not saying it's an easy job for them, but the, the almost like contempt, it seems like they have sometimes to try to be more inclusive, to, to highlight uh, these really special people and, and how difficult it is for them to, to make it to these positions. Uh, it's frustrating. And I, I'm not part of any groups. I'm just a football fan who wants more uh, from the people covering the sport. Yeah, that's a really well said point, Rohan. Thanks for saying that. And I definitely agree. You know, there are people in the NFL who are working to change that. I know Sam Rappaport in the league office has really paved a lot of pathways for women in the sport. Troy Vincent is doing a lot of work to, um, ensure that minority coaching candidates, candidates of color can forge the same connections that many white candidates often just are, are given or enter the league with um, and to, you know, kind of force more inclusive hiring practices. So there are people who are working at it, but I think anytime something is positioned as a women's problem or a game for the boys, um, it's it just chips away at that or it undercuts those efforts and so i think it's it's definitely frustrating to see so i appreciate your take on that as well rohan is that how well, this, did we do did we make this it was did, a great episode is, is it as long as it's not going to be the last episode that was my goal here today was make sure i didn't do such a bad job that they said we got to take this podcast off the air uh indefinitely <laughs> no and you in fact we will have you back on again even when Connor's back, we will have the three of us join. You can come on for a fourth and Han segment anytime you go. want, Rohan. Your insight is valuable, and it was just a lot of fun having you here today. No, oh, my pleasure. I'm looking forward to doing it again. All right. Well, hopefully we will have you back on again soon for our listeners' benefit. Thank you again. The Weekside Podcast is me, Jenny Frentis, and this week, Rohan Nadkarni. We are produced by Shelby Royston, king of sound effects. SI's executive producer of podcasts is Scott Brody. Ben Eagle is director of editorial project and product. Mark Moravik is the emeritus executive director of the MMQB. Our theme music was written and composed by singer-songwriter Ryan Harris-Brown, whose latest album, Stranded in the Present Tense, is available now on all major streaming services. Keep up with the Weekside Podcast by subscribing to our new feed on Apple Podcasts, and while you're there, leave a rating and review. It really does help other people find the show, which is also available on Spotify, Radio.com, Stitcher, or wherever else you find your podcasts. 